The second law of thermodynamics says that everything tends to become more disorganized. Does that mean evolution is a violation of the second law? That's our topic today on Creation Magazine Live. The audio podcast that you're about to hear features scientific evidence for biblical creation. For many more evidences for the accuracy of the Bible, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. And today on the program, we're going to be talking about the second law of thermodynamics and how this relates. It does relate to the creation evolution issue. It's actually a fascinating topic. Mm -hmm. Now, we're really excited because we've got a special guest, Dr. Carl Wieland, and he's written a book called World Winding Down. Yeah, brand new book. Yes, brand new book, and uh, it it explains in detail what we're going to be kind of summarizing today, so you can check that out. But, I mean, uh, Dr. Wieland, we're so happy to have you here. There'd be no Creation Magazine Live if it wasn't for Creation Magazine, and you're the fellow who who actually started that. So it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Welcome. Great to be here. So we'll get, we'll get right into our, our, our topic here. On page 17 of, uh, of your book here, uh, it's, it said, you, you quote from Ivan Bazarov, a Russian physicist, and, and he said this, The second law of thermodynamics is without doubt one of the most perfect laws in physics. Any reproducible violation of it, however small, would bring, bring the discoverer great riches as well as a trip to Stockholm, to, uh, to, con- to collect the Nobel Prize. The world's energy problems will be, will be solved at one stroke. It is not possible to find any other law for which a proposed violation would bring more skepticism than this one. Not even Maxwell's laws of electricity or Newton's laws of gravitation are so sacrosanct. Now that is certainly high praise for this second law of thermodynamics. Let, let's start mm. off by, uh, what is this law all about? But let's, let's summarize this to see what it's all about. I'm glad you asked me what's it all about, because if you'd asked me to get into technical definitions, I think all the viewers would go to sleep, because <laughs> that's one of the things I've tried to do to make this, this law, which is really quite exciting, come alive. Uh, because there's so many different ways to define it. If I said to you, heat will always flow from a hot body to a cold one, you know, you might think, so what? But it's, right. it's yep. not only about that. It's also about the tendency for things left to themselves to become more disorderly. It's about the tendency for the available energy to do work, or the energy available to do work, to continually decrease. It's about the reason why when you transmit information in a message, that that information will naturally and spontaneously tend to decrease. You know, in other words, if you had, in the old days of cassette tapes, a copy of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, and you copied it and made a copy of a copy of a copy and so on it'll never evolve into the ninth symphony it'll just become all scrambled (laughs) up and disordered and also why certain types of perpetual motion machines are impossible and uh, you know you can summarize that all up as we're going to see in the fact that every single process there is scrambles up the whole universe makes the whole universe as a whole more disorderly so, so this, this seems to then relate to quite a number of different processes, not just, like you said, heat and things like that, but a, a number of different things that we experience. Actually, just about everything. In fact, everything that yeah. you can think of. Yeah. Any exchange of matter and energy involves you know, molecules moving and so on. And what the second law principles are all about, those things which give rise to this law, um, has to do with the probability of how systems of matter and energy 
are going to rearrange themselves. So, Dr. Bazarov mentioned that uh, you know the world's energy problems would be solved if this law could be broken. What, 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 what does he mean there? Well, to explain, if you, if this was the crust of the Earth, say, uh, even though the crust of the Earth is not particularly the t top surface of it, not particularly hot, but nevertheless it's got heat energy in it. Now, what if you could take that and you could cool it down by 0.1 of a degree? Well, I forget the math, but you could probably heat millions of homes for, for the next, you know, 100 years, something, right. something like that, from the energy that you'd gained from the Earth's crust. But if you tried to do that by cooling down the Earth's crust while it heated up something else, that would actually be impossible. You know, you could pump things that way like an air conditioner does, right. but you've got to have the machinery, you've got to have an extra input of energy so you'd lose out. But the second law actually says that that sort of thing, which is called a perpetual motion machine of the second kind, is actually impossible. If it wasn't, you could plug things into the earth, basically, if you had a gadget that knew how to do that, and you could get all this free energy. Special guest, Dr. Carl Wieland, who's written his book, World Winding Down, which is a, just a, a fantastic book. I think I read that book in two days. It was, uh, it was pretty exciting. So. Yeah, it's, it's not a big book, and, yep. it, and it relates to, it, 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 it gets this down to, you don't need to be a physicist to understand this, and that's one of the brilliant things about this book. Yep. Now, in the introduction, uh, Dr. Wieland, you wrote this. Now, for instance, some, talking about here about creationists, some creationists would argue that the second law of thermodynamics absolutely precluded evolution from microbe to man because things naturally went downhill. Right. But then when confronted with the facts that seeds naturally grow into plants, they would start talking about exceptions to the second law. Right. Evolutionists would sometimes claim that evolution itself was an exception to the second law. The question here is, are there exceptions to the second law? Well, no, there are none. And by definition, it wouldn't be a law of science if there were any exceptions to it. Right. And uh, so the very fact that embryos can grow up into adult organisms or seeds into plants without violating the second law uh, shows you that theoretically, if the evolutionary mechanism was capable of taking microbes to microbiologists, the second law of itself would not preclude that. Now, the principles that underlie this second law, the sorts of things I talked about at the beginning, such as the information principles and so on, as I explain in the book, show you that it's very, very unlikely for that to happen. That's a different set of arguments in one sense. And of course, uh, later on in the book, it points out how big picture evolution, big bang to you, is precluded by the second law. But this idea of microbes to man evolution, specifically that yeah. se segment of evolution, is not actually forbidden by the second law. Why is this a big deal? Because I think it's important if Christians and creationists use arguments that can be vulnerable, can be sort of shot down in flames, and others think, well, they don't know what they're talking about, then they can't use the other powerful aspects of the second law right. to uh, argue for a biblical worldview. Yes. So it's a little more, I mean, in, in one sense, in, in your book here, you've, you've gotten the technical language out for the most part, and it's understandable to, as, as we just said, non-physicists, but it's not that it's simplistic. There are some things like microbes to man, which is, and, and creationists have pointed out, it's an apparent contradiction of the second law, but it's not. 
And so there are those details that need to be carefully understood before it's used to its full effect in the creation evolution issue. Right. I mean, um, evolutionists have used examples, right? And they say, well, order can arise spontaneously. You know, what about ice crystals or snowflakes or, or you know, oil and water separating out and things like that? Um, these are uh, examples of, of lesser order becoming greater order. So what does the second law say about that? How does that, uh, how does that play out? Well, if I can talk about the principles behind the second law, it has to do with things becoming more probable, taking on the most probable arrangement of matter and energy, and uh, that's always the greater disorder. Uh, the reason, for instance, you know, why when I throw up a whole lot of ping pong balls into the air and they fall onto the floor, they don't arrange themselves into my name or anything like that, but they adopt what you would see as a random uh, arrangement sure, is yeah. because that's far more probable for that to happen than for them to line up as my name. And if you sort of analyse carefully why heat flows from hot bodies to cold bodies and so on, then the examples in the book show that that's what it's doing. It's sort of, you know, going to the most evened out situation, which is always uh, the, the most probable. Um, but you could actually force order to arise by setting certain constraints into the system. For example, I could put special, um, you know, grooves or, or, or little guardrails and so on that would ensure that most of those balls dropping onto the ground would land into a, into a groove that was sort of shaped in my name and then it would adopt that order spontaneously and naturally. It would have no choice. Right. To put it a simplistic way, order can be forced to arise by the constraints in a system. So, for example, when ice crystals form or, you know, say a, a bowl of warm salt water cools down and it forms crystals, then that's order, but that order is already existing in the little hooks and molecular magnets, if you like, that are on those molecules of sodium and chlorine in the salt. So it's got no choice but to arise. It'll happen every time. But in the process, and here's the key, as that salt water cools down, it's heating up the air around it. So that part's becoming more orderly. The rest of the universe, represented by the surroundings of that system, yeah. becomes more disorderly, and the net result is that the whole universe becomes more scrambled up, increases its entropy is the technical term, but I won't confuse readers yeah. with that. By the way, uh, when you build a house, you're obviously increasing the order right. in that yeah. part of your city. You're but bringing structure to things that were unstructured previously. Correct. But in the process, as you chomp into your McDonald's hamburgers <laughs> to have the energy to build the house, you're disordering those. And you're also, as you're moving through the air with your power tools and so on, you're heating the air. So the second law actually insists, and this is where it's an absolute law, that for any process at all, if you add up the energy inside the system that you're looking, up, looking at and the energy in the rest of the universe, the net result of adding those two up is always an increase in disorder, in scrambling yeah. up, which means that every single thing in the universe runs it down, which means you cannot possibly have a situation where things go from nothing to nature all by themselves. Right you know, big bang to you type of evolution. Now, Carl, on page 60, uh, you wrote this. 
That's why, especially in responses to creationists inaccurately applying the second law of thermodynamics, you will hear evolutionists say correctly that the second law is defined in terms of isolated systems. They correctly point out that that though that only systems that the only systems for which the second law absolutely forbids an overall increase in order are such isolated systems. The Earth is an open system, in particular open to the sun's energy, so if evolution from microbe to man were to take place, it would not violate the second law any more than the growth of a seed into a tree or an embryo into an adult organism violates it. Well, the obvious question people might have to that is, you know, have living systems found a way around the second law? We saw before that there are no exceptions, and we also saw that order can be forced to arise by the right mechanisms, the right constraints to the system. And living things, of course, have mechanisms. That's why eggs grow into chickens. They right. have ways to utilize the energy to make things head in the opposite direction to the second law tendency, but in doing so they don't violate the second law because the whole universe still gets scrambled up as a result. Um, by the way, the universe itself is an isolated system because right. it's isolated from any other exchange with any other matter or energy by definition. And so therefore the second law does apply strictly to the whole universe as a whole. Now, you know, an air conditioner is a machine that has a mechanism that allows it to pump heat in the opposite direction to the normal flow, the normal hot to cold flow um, that the second law would otherwise demand, but it doesn't violate the second law because once again, the whole thing runs down, the whole thing causes the universe as a whole to become scrambled up. Another interesting thing to think about is the fact that our bodies are continually pumping against this second law tendency. You see, right. the natural tendency in our bodies is order to dust. You switch off the machinery in our bodies and that's what'll happen. It'll yep. head to that direction. By the way, that, that final state where everything is evened out and no more change takes place, that's technically called thermodynamic equilibrium. So that's the direction you don't want to head in. Right. And, and it's like from the moment you're born, you know, all of this machinery in your body is designed to keep you away from that thermodynamic equilibrium. And the minute that breaks down, bang. But so that's the, the way in which you'll head. Without programmed machinery, you're not going to be able to fight against this law. Correct. But even overall, even if with programmed machinery, you still can't fight the second law. You can't fight the second law. And this, I think I'd like to distinguish between the principles behind the second law, which is this relentless tendency to disorder, and the strictly defined second law. You know, the strictly defined one, you can apply that to the whole universe. And you can also show, for example, that uh, it had to be wound up in the beginning by a God who is greater than the system and outside the system. Right. You know, that's the only graph I, I use in the book because I try not to use complicated graphs and equations and things like this is, is one that shows very clearly that the tendency for the whole universe, every single process in it, to decrease the energy available for work, for example, means that if you stretch that back, and uh, we can show the viewers this graph here, then you can't go back beyond a point at which the available energy is equal to the total energy. The first law of thermodynamics says the 
total energy of the universe always remains constant. So to put it very simply, the world is like a big clock that's winding down and it can't wind itself up because there is no single process in the universe that can do that. And the God of the Hindus can't do that because he, she or it is a part of the universe. Right. Uh, so it's only a transcendent creator God who's outside the universe but greater than it that can actually have wound it up in the beginning. I think the book is fantastic for, for creationists, for Christians, Christians and secularists because um, you've yeah. made those differentiations. I think um, both parties could, could get clarity from reading your book. It's because you're talking about the question of origins. That's what we talk about here on Creation Magazine Live. Um, and so when you think that through, um, that, that's huge. And uh, I guess yeah. one of the questions you know, Christians would ask is, okay, well, when did this law kick in? I mean, did the second law start at the time of the curse, when Adam fell, when bad things came in? Um, and maybe you can address that. I can understand why it's tempting to think that, but actually running down is not always bad. What I mean by that is without the second law, Adam couldn't digest a carrot <laughs> and he couldn't inflate his lungs because it's, uh, you know, when you expand your diaphragm and your, your rib cage, you know, you think that you're sucking air in, but in actual fact what's happening is you're simply increasing the amount of available space right. for air molecules to occupy and uh, this tendency to greater disorder actually is the reason why those air molecules will rush inside and, and fill your lungs. So for Adam to breathe, you know, you had to have the, se had to have the second law the process of the sun shining onto the earth is a second law process. Right. It's running down. The sun will eventually uh, cool right off if God w wasn't going to intervene at some point. Right. And then everything would be completely dead. The, I mean, that's, by the way, the grand and glorious hope of the evolutionist, of the materialist, yeah. <laughs> is that everything is going to be completely dead. Everything heat will, death. Yeah, heat death. Everything will be at the same temperature. Right. No machines will work and everything will be completely dead. And that running down, that fits... What it says in the Bible in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, and that's citing Psalm 102. And it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, the heavens will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. You know, this idea that everything is wearing out and running down, uh, that was only discovered in the last few hundred years was right there in the scriptures all along. Right. And this idea that it will have to be changed like, you know, uh, uh, an old coat that you wear, it'll have to be renewed. And of course, that points to the fact that there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. Yes. Yeah. The Bible says that God will interfere and will interrupt these natural processes. So God would have had to be upholding the creation even before the curse happened then because entropy would have been taking place. And, uh, and, and so that, that downward process, in a sense, right, was already occurring even, even before uh, well, well, Adam you, sinned. Well, well, well you, exactly. And you could look at the fact, though, that um, just as the Israelites' shoes didn't wear out for the 40 years in, in the desert, right. uh, because God, in a, in a special way, sustained things even more than nowadays, right. uh, it's almost like in the background... There's this sustaining process, which means that although the second law is operating, the net affects the bad things that are happening today as a result of decay and running down uh, are 
held off. And of course, in eternity, that's what will have to happen. Now, Carl, what made you want to write this book? Well, I've, I've always had a passion for explaining things, you know, getting people to reach what I call an aha point, you know, yes. where they say, yeah. aha, now I get it, now I really get it, rather than just understanding it at some abstract head level. And I think it comes from the fact that when I did first year physics as a, as a medical student, I knew all of the equations because I'd learned them just the rote way. Right. But yeah. I don't think I ever at that point really understood at a deep level why the second law? You know, why is it so? And it always frustrated me. And I tried to ask physicists and they would just mumble equations. And it was <laughs> obvious that, that they didn't really have that gut intuition. I mean, I'm sure some of them do. And uh, so one day I gave a talk at an Australian university as part of a creation conference on this subject. And I used all these simple examples because that's what I needed. You right. Know? And uh, a guy got up and at the, in the question time and he said he was a lecturer in physics at that university. And oh, he said, okay. He said that was the best layman's explanation I've heard and so on. So anyway, in time, I got persuaded to put this into a talk and there's a DVD on it and uh, also available on creation.com on the web store. But then somebody doing the transcript of that talk said, hey, this would make a great book. So it sort of developed. And to make sure that it was scientifically accurate, I, I wanted to get it carefully checked. So I had a research professor of physics um, check it out and also uh, a physical chemist, a PhD guy. So they actually added a lot of things to the footnotes, which are technical for those people who really like that technical okay, stuff. Right. But the layman's thing is just one continual flow and uh, the guys were very happy that it was accurate. So that, that, that's great. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to know that, I mean, we've both read it. This kind of advanced yep. copy that we have here in Canada, we've, we've both read it. Yep. And uh, it's, it's brand new. And it is at a layman's level. And it's, it's so comforting to know that, that there is the, the technical rigor behind it. The, the, the accuracy is there. Right. Uh, it's, it's just, I mean, you, you found it to be an, an easy read as well. Yep. It's a very comprehensible. Well, well I, I was excited that our receptionist told me just in the last 24 hours on, on an email that uh, they were very grateful for the book and they got a heap out of it, you know, so right. I, I was excited, you know, because that was the purpose, to make things come alive for everyone. I think it was good, too, because it, uh, like we mentioned, you know, creationists and evolutionists have used this second law inappropriately. And uh, I know you've got a passion for, you know, for accuracy, especially for, for Christians, for creationists. We, we get, you know, kind of pummeled sometimes if we say the wrong thing. And, and, uh, and I think that was one of the great parts of the book. It's that obsessional German nature. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. It's, it's a good thing. Yeah. But... Uh, no, it's, it's wonderful mm. to have the book. If, if you're interested in getting a copy, creation.com and, and the DVD as well. Uh, talk on the, on the same subject. You can get that at, obviously at creation.com. It's called well, Understanding the Law of Decay. There you go. Understanding the Law of Decay. Right. You can and go to creation.com, punch that in there. Yeah. Get yourself lots right. of... And it, the implications for, for this debate, for the origins debate, creation evolution, are huge. This is powerful, powerful... You could say support, both support for creation, for the creator God of the Bible, and powerful evidence against evolution. That's what we talk about here on Creation Magazine Live. We'll see you next time. 
Both the Creation Magazine live TV show and this podcast are produced by Creation Ministries International, a global think tank organization dedicated to disseminating the huge amount of scientific evidence for the accuracy of the biblical account of the origin of our universe. If you'd like to donate to keep this information coming, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.